1: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello
0: and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with us and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. Before we get to the show, I just want to mention a few things. Initial Ascent Packs, they're awesome. I used a 2K all last season. Still using it now for stuff. I'm going to be using it for uh, training, for uh, prepping for my hunt and getting some miles in with some weight on my back. And I just recently picked up a 6K, and it's going to be awesome as well. Plan on using it on my elk hunt along with the 2K if I'm doing some day hunts or something and having a base camp. But uh, if I'm packing on my back and going in there, depending on where I'm at, I'm going to be using that 6K. Uh, Dennis and Joe are amazing people. What's awesome about that company is you can reach out to them, and they're the ones who are going to answer your call and actually talk to you about their product. And you're going to even get a handwritten note from them thanking you for your purchase and uh, wishing you luck on that hunt. And I just find that is super awesome and amazing in this day and age to have somebody that does that for you and uh, actually hand writes a note for you is just amazing and uh, on top of that it's an american-made product and one thing about this podcast is and myself is just that anything that's american-made that i can support or get behind and it's a quality product i'm going to talk about it this is not a paid promotion i'm honestly just talking to you about an amazing pack so uh check them out if, if you don't have one or you're looking for a pack give, give them a try uh you'll like it for sure And then on top of that, we're going to talk about TreelineAcademy.net. TreelineAcademy.net is the most comprehensive e-scouting course ever, ever made. Mark Livesey is just an amazing, amazing wealth of knowledge, and he's willing to share that with everybody. So uh, check that out and see what's going on there with that. Use promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20% on sign-up. It's awesome. And uh, actually, it's not 20%. It's 20 bucks. Save yourself $20 off of sign-up. Then the next one I want to talk about is Basemap. Basemap app with their hunt data, the the online mapping system for e-scouting, setting waypoints, smart markers, Uh, So you have all your hunt data on the wind and anything, as long as you have a cell signal. It's absolutely amazing. There's so much more that's coming out. They've updated their offline maps, so they're way, way, way faster than they used to be, which I know a lot of people were actually kind of complaining about that, but now they're lightning fast. I've downloaded them, used them. It's awesome. On top of that, they've got some new updates that are coming out that are just going to blow you away. Can't talk about them yet, but we will be talking about them. So check them out. Use promo code pc twenty five. Save yourself twenty-five percent on sign up. Only on the website, not on the app. And with that being said, let's get to our show. All right. So I'm sitting here and I am talking to Brian Broderick. Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. So Brian, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit and we will go ahead and kind of just roll into this thing. Sure. Um uh I live
2: in uh southern Alabama, uh, LA, lower Alabama, if you will. So uh, lived down the Gulf Coast, born and raised down here, and uh, been bow hunting, um, I guess, going on uh, 36 years now, and uh, started hunting uh, out west, doing a lot of public land hunting about 30 years ago. So uh, when I was 18, I started and pretty much, uh, spent my whole life just working so I can hunt. So that's, that's
0: basically my story in a nutshell. So, um, when, when did you decide that you wanted to go out West and kind of pursue game out West? What led you to that? Uh, well, I, you know, I consumed everything available to
2: me. Uh, once I discovered, um, uh, hunting and, and especially bow hunting, um, Consumed all the media, everything I could get my hands on. This is all prior to outdoor television
0: and things like that. Certainly, um, pre-internet. So you mean um, like actual books and magazines and things that? Uh, oh, you, you people bet. don't consume you that That's much what, anymore.
2: No, <laughs> no. My like my whole room was just stacks of hunting magazines. Uh, I, uh, uh, you know, had some of the old original Eastman stuff. I had uh, fur fishing game. Oh, yeah. Some of the original stuff back then, some of the original traditional bow hunter stuff. I mean, I just was eat up with it. And so, um, and then of course, you start reading the stories about uh, hunting out West. And for a Southern boy, it was super romantic um, to read about it and just, you know, just consumed everything I really thought about. So um, I was super fortunate. Uh, there was a, a gentleman at our church that worked with our youth group. And he had been in the military and had been stationed um, out in Arizona and New Mexico during his tenure in the service. And he was an incredible outdoorsman, incredible hunter, incredible trapper, just, just, uh, you know, one of the guys that would, he would stand out today. He was that good. And so, but back then he was just a unicorn. And, um. You know, I was super fortunate to have a relationship with him through our church and he was an incredible mentor and, you know, he got, he's the one that started me bow hunting. Um, No one in my family bow hunted, they just gun hunted and um, he got me started trapping and fly fishing and all kinds of great things. And um, he and I uh, went out west uh, to New Mexico uh, the fall after I graduated high school and um he took me out to a unit where he had hunted in the past when he was living out there and um you know that was in 1991 so i've been going ever since and then it got a little obsessive to where i was quitting my job you know <laughs> usually around the middle of, end of august every year wherever i was working at the time most of the time it was at a hunting and fishing store so it was kind of an accepted you know, practice leave of right? type of deal. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the the cold front flu was an acceptable excuse to miss work, but but anyway, I would leave and put an old crappy camper shell that I bought secondhand on the back of my truck and drive out west. And I'd stay out there pretty much the entire month of September and hunt multiple states. Uh and then it started creeping into October. Then I started driving up into Canada. And so it just got to be um where it was uh I don't know. That's what I did for a living in in the fall. I felt like I was a a bow hunting gypsy because I would work all year to save up enough money um, to be able to live out of my truck for a month or two in the fall. And I was going to school at the time. So I would take the fall semester off instead of the summer, like everyone else.
3: Right. (laughs) And so
2: the fall was my summer. And, you know, all my buddies were like, uh, man, you're crazy. You're missing football games and the parties and yeah. nobody wants to miss the fall in college i was like nah i'm I'm good so a lot of alone time a lot of alone time on the mountain a uh, lot of sketchy situations some pretty uh close calls at times and um but i wouldn't trade it for anything so yeah. um that's that's just what i did you know it's uh what i've kind of spent my whole life doing is working to be able to do the things i want to do
0: so in the days obviously before GPSs and all those fancy navigation tools and and cell phones and uh you know mm-hmm. all the fancy maps and stuff uh right how, how did you how did you find your way around i mean did you actually learn land navigation somewhere that uh you you knew those skills from you know reference points on a map and and a compass yes or, sir i mean yep yep so the gentleman that i mentioned earlier um he taught me the basics
2: of that. Um, when I would go to a new area, I would actually call like the forest service. I would call the department of game and fish and talk to biologists. And you got to realize back then you could call a biologist and they would be honest with you. And they would tell you, you know, some pretty true stats. Um, and they weren't getting calls every day. Like they probably are now they're probably, you know, they weren't, you know, basically state sponsored hunting consultants like they are now. <laughs> right. Um so, you know, when a you know, young Southern boy would call them and say, Hey, I'm fixing to drive out from lower Alabama and come out there and hunt for a couple of weeks, they'd just laugh because they were thinking, man, this kid's gonna wash out in five minutes. They had no idea I'd been there before or been around there. And so I'd get some pretty good information. And then, you know, you had to like uh, Like, physically get the book from the USGS. And um, you go through the book and you would check and write down the numbers of the topo maps that you wanted and to what scale. And you would fill out a paper order form. (laughs) You would actually write a check and you'd snail mail it out there. And then they'd snail mail you your your paper maps. And my mother was a principal at the time. And so I would go to her school uh, after school and I would laminate in the library i'd laminate (laughs) all my topo maps um so because they weren't water you know you can order them waterproof now or water resistant but why i I don't know if people even know what paper maps are now i'm i'm thinking that the the water resistant paper topo maps are like new age stuff (laughs) nobody (laughs) uses that crap anymore but anyway um no i'd laminate them and
0: you know get your highlighters out out there with highlight stuff on them and yeah. yeah,
2: And it, and it looks so different you'd get out there and it, there'd be a learning curve. And, but back then there was always somebody around. There was a local coming down, coming down the mountain, or there was a logger. There was somebody and you could just, you know, flag someone down and go, Hey, I think I'm here. They're like, no, 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 no. You're 30 miles from where you're, <laughs> where you think you are. So you'd get some really good guidance, you know, and, um, you just kind of struggle through it. And, uh, the first GPS I ever saw um, was in Idaho and I had sat down at a junction of a trail um, in the limb high zone. And I was pretty tuckered out. I had all my camp on my back. I would gotten in about four and a half, five miles, something like that. And it was a pretty good push, pretty good, a lot of elevation gain. So I sat down and uh, I was eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and um I looked down, you know, at at my feet to my right, and there was a GPS there and it was still on. (laughs) Now this thing was the size of a, you know, like a brick, like a like a house brick. I mean, it was big, you know, but it was a um uh you know one of those old big GPSs that had the little bitty screen on it. And uh you just, you know, you had to like punch through the numbers and the letters. It took forever to type anything in and and uh but somebody had left it there and that's the first one i ever saw i had no idea how to use it but i just turned it off and stuck it in my bag Mm -hmm. and that's the first gps that i ever saw it was (laughs) on the mountain there in idaho that would have been in 90 maybe 94 95 something like that um (laughs) like somewhere around there i can't remember and um after that i started realizing you know that as they got smaller that, that you could have that as a backup plan. Yeah. And so I started, as they got a little smaller, I started using them as a kind of an emergency type thing, but I still very rarely ever used them and never use them still today as pretty much just paper nav and, um, going off maps and things like that.
0: So are you primarily like, you know, truck camping or having a base camp somewhere and then, uh, trekking out from from camp or are you you backpack hunting now
2: well luke now now i am now i'm a i'm a a truck camping base camp guy yeah um i'm i'm half the man i used to be so i can't do the the things i did when i was in my 20s um and back in 13 or 14 i actually had a building collapse while i was in it so uh, i had some pretty substantial damage and Couldn't walk for about six months, had to start walking again. Anyway, long story short, I I can't do all the things I used to do. I'm probably 70% of what I could do prior to that. And so um, early on days, I did a lot of um, backpack, everything on your back, you know, hunting. And I basically would load camp every day and stay mobile until I got in them. Um, Fortunately, having that experience for 15 or 20 years, I got to explore a lot of country. I got to figure out how elk and deer move through country and how they react to different uh, weather conditions, pressure, things like that. And for the most part, a lot of the areas that I hunted even back then still can produce for me. They're not near as good, of course, but Uh, they can still produce but I can hunt those areas more efficiently and not be as maybe as physically of a demanding physically demanding of a hunt Uh, right because I know how to you know basically set up a camp and be within striking distance of where elk should be it doesn't always work but um usually if you schedule yourself enough time you can get into elk and deer um if you have a lot of Plan B, C, D, E's, and F's that you
0: can just kind of move through the progression till you get in them. I found that, you know, I so my first elk hunt, I didn't have any game plan whatsoever. I thought it would be like, oh, yeah, look at the map, find some spots, head out there. You get there, you get, like you said, that whole, you know, wow, this is completely different than what I pictured in my head or looking at a map. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, maps are flat. (laughs) yes they are and those lines some of them you know oh it doesn't look that tight when you're looking at it but then you start gauging it and you actually stand there and you're looking up and you're going oh man that's that's a 2000 you know foot elevation gain within you know less than a quarter or an eighth of a mile traveled so uh, right (laughs) so um you know that was like big discouragement and then um you know, by day three, you're beaten down. You, you don't have a game plan anymore. And then so talking to guys like Mark Livesey and, and it's Treeline Academy, I think that's huge for for actually having, like you said, that game plan, A, B, C, D and, and solidify that, like put it on paper. So you when you're out there and you're in the moment, and you're feeling beaten down. Look at that and, you know, go, OK, man, it's not working out here. I'm going to jump up in elevation because that's where I think they're going to be because we're not seeing any sign here or anything like that and then you look at your map or, or your 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 game plan and then go okay yeah you know my fourth option that's at higher elevation maybe maybe go check that out I think that's something that either a seasoned hunter knows or somebody that's had their butt kicked enough to where they said man I need to reevaluate this and and do that and I think that's awesome that like you, you brought that in and, and have that as uh, how, how did you formulate that? How did you come up well, with that?
2: Well, it was a, a lot of screw ups, um, <laughs> doing it wrong, doing it wrong a lot, uh, skinning your knees. Um, but as long as you're pulling good lessons out of every time you, you kind of step on your pecker there a little bit, you, <laughs> you're going to become a better hunter. You know, it's the guys that, here's the problem guys will go out and do their do-it-yourself hunts and they'll learn some really valuable lessons. But they will come home and they will prioritize the lessons they've learned behind what they're listening to on podcasts or YouTube channels or whatever. They'll literally take the, the Western spiel if you will and prioritize that over the hard lessons they learned and physically you know gathered themselves and that is that's the problem and what you've got to realize is is when you listen you got because listen you know every every guy every block in the, in the western states there's a guy on every block with a podcast there's a guy <laughs> with on every block with a youtube channel you know <laughs> They get two or three tags a year. They get to hunt about two months. They're not like us in the East where we have longer seasons, higher game limits. We actually get to hunt for a lot of the year. They get to hunt for a very short amount of time, a very limited amount of game they they can take uh, with the limited tag system. So they talk a lot about hunting. They talk a lot about gear. They just dissect it to the nth degree. The problem is, is when you're listening to all this stuff, you're listening to the highlight reel. You're listening to SportsCenter. You're getting, <laughs> you know, their five best plays out of fifteen years, but they're delivering those messages as rules of thumb, which is not what's going to translate for guys like you and I that are driving from the east side of the river out there. Yeah. So. You've got to really place more value on your own experiences and your own lessons you've learned and don't deviate from that path that you've actually gathered the intel you've gathered yourself. I see so many guys do it and I'm super open and honest with like where I hunt, where I've hunted in the past. If customers call me and they are saying, Hey, I'm going here or going there. Do you know anything? If I know, I'll tell them. Um, I had a really famous western guy that i really like a lot uh, that has a really famous western podcast and he was sitting on uh his honey hole on top of a mountain glass in one of his honey holes last year right before he killed the biggest bull he's ever killed and one of my buddies from arkansas you know we started i was kind of talking about the areas i hunted and kind of giving him some directions he walked right in there on him and started talking and then I was the mutual friend, you know, so I, I, you know, I, I'll send people wherever if I'm not hunting there, I don't care. If I am, I don't care. You know I mean? Yeah. I'm about sharing. So, but I have these guys that'll send me these maps or these pins and go, Hey, we're going to park here, walk to here. And I'll go, Hey guys, you see all those little lines between where you're going and where you're parked. That's a million lines of death is what that is. You're, you're about to gain about 3000 feet in two miles. You're not going to make it and you're damn sure not going to make it with 60 pounds on your back, you know? (laughs) So you have to be realistic about what you can do as an Eastern guy going out West limitations. I live, I live at sea level. So when I go out there, it's like breathing through a coffee straw. (laughs) You can't ever get enough air, you know? So you have to, you know, plan how you're going to hunt and plan how you're going to, you know, approach animals, and, you know, I've I've hunted with so many guys out west that are just incredible hunters, they're incredible athletes, or athletic people, Um, and we'll see, you know, an elk across a canyon, and they're like, let's go straight to him, and I've got to walk the rim, I'm going to go around the rim to go to the other side, I'm not going to, you know, lose and gain 2,000 feet of elevation to go to an elk, Cause I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to get there. And I'm not going to be any good when I get there. I would rather take, you know, another 30 minutes and, and maintain my elevation and basically side hill or ridge walk all the way around to where I can do it. When I get there, I can still breathe. And yeah. that's super important for guys coming from out east going west, you know?
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Um, so, Kind of wanted to talk to you, which we haven't done yet. But that's awesome because I think our conversation is great. But uh-huh. so anybody listening so far, they may not know who you are. Um, as well, far, I just told them who I was. Well, you did, but you didn't tell them oh. what company you own or uh, oh. what you do as far as that. So we can. I want to dive oh, I gotcha. in. I want to dive into that a little bit because actually, I'm kind of curious myself. About uh, the arrow system So I currently use Day6 Evo Broadheads I think they're awesome Um, I like the fact that I can blow through A shoulder blade And take it to a paper wheel With some compound on it And resharpen it And be able to go back out there I like the fact that when I hit that Shoulder blade I know there's not pieces of Aluminum and pieces of blade going all over when I go to field dress that deer. Sure. There's none of that that's going to stab me and get my, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I I think there's something to be said for a product that actually is durable, reusable and easily sharpenable. So, um, of
2: can you well, I, would, I wouldn't get I wouldn't get carried away with the easily, easily sharpenable stuff. I Always want to be super honest. Well, it's uh So, <laughs> as long as you don't like completely ruin the edge, it's super easy to touch up. Yeah. And the beauty of what we're doing is is that it maintains its edge very well. I think is I think the point you're making that it retains True. its edge.
0: But I mean, what is yeah. it as far as Rockwell scale hardness? It's like uh what 50-something, 50 59, 58, somewhere in there? 58, 59, yeah. Okay. And see, I know that because I'm kind of a knife guy. I love knives, right? So S30V steel. Sure. I mean, it's a, it's a quality tool steel, and uh, you put the edge on it. It has great edge retention, depending on, you know, what hardness you put to it. And, um, yes. you know, with, with the right sharpening fixture, even if you do kind of obliterate that edge, you, you can restore that. And then sure. be able to touch it up, like I said, with a paper wheel, like I do on my on my uh, grinder. Um, yeah, I think that's an awesome way to just put that back to where I can literally put a little spit on my arm and shave the hair right off of it. So, um, right. Well, I think the point I was making is is that I don't ever want
2: to mislead anyone. Like we never say, like you'll never hear us say feel point accurate," because it's physics. There's no way that a broadhead's going to shoot the same at a field point. Once you get past certain distances, you've got drag, aerodynamics. It's just not going to allow it. So we. Ne- I don't ever want to mislead people. The reason I chose the steel that we chose is because I, I love a good steel too. Uh, I'm also a real knife guy, not a disposable blade knife guy. <laughs> um, so, and I'll, you know, I'll usually have, I'll usually put a knife to, these are real numbers, not internet numbers, but and not just all mine, but I'll put a knife to put somewhere around 50 plus animals a year. So and just by the nature of geography, where I live and where we hunt and how long our seasons are. Um, so for me, having a steel that will retain its edge is super important. And I've broken so many disposable blades are replaceable blade, knife blades. I'm just never going to use them. <laughs> they're incredibly dangerous. They don't hold up. I love the sharpness, like the first, you know, two or three minutes, and then they break. So <laughs> I'm, a tool, I'm a knife steel guy too. And so S30V and S35V, they're both very similar. What I like about those is they're not the, they're not the toughest, but they're right there near the top they're not the the most corrosion resistant, but it's right near the top. Like you can't hardly get anything better. Um, but when it comes to edge retention, they're at the top. And when it comes to, you know, the, the ability to resharpen them, they're not at the top, but they're close. But what people don't understand is, is that with a with a steel like that, if your focus is edge retention, which for me it is, um, it's not going to be super easy to resharpen if you completely dull it. Uh, but the beauty of a blade like that, with like our broadheads and knives that are made that way, is that if you don't damage it, it's going to hold its edge so well that it takes almost no effort to bring it back to factory sharpness after it's been through an animal. And for me, any of the guy, anybody that's ever hunted with me knows that it's a literally shoot a lot, dig the arrows out of the mud, rinse them off in the creek or in the, you know, the whatever, the swamp. It's a rinse and repeat thing. I've gotta have a a blade that's gonna hold its edge. Because if not, I would just constantly be resharpening heads, and I I just don't, who wants to do that? So that's why (laughs) I picked that steel. I didn't want it to corrode, but I wanted it to be number one on edge retention, because once you move away from the whitetail world and you get into elk, moose, you're dealing with a lot coarser hair. You're also dealing with a lot thicker hide. Um, Even all the, the, uh, you know, the, the tissue inside those animals, You know, their sinew, all of that stuff is so much tougher than like a whitetail. So as that arrow is going through and that head is cutting, it's constantly meeting different densities and different matter, you know, of of, uh, different organic tissue that is just trying to dull that blade. And so edge retention for me, for a broadhead, is just as critical as it is for a skinning knife. If you're trying to take one knife in, that's going to have the ability to clean and quarter and skin a whole elk. It's the same thing with a head. Um, With a broadhead, you have a blade angle issue. You can't always have that very slight blade angle like a knife where you can draw the knife and drag it to cut. There's going to be angles because of the geometry to where not only is it trying to slice, but it's also chopping because of the different angles that's where the edge retention is more important than anything because you don't have the ability to have this super long skinny broadhead that doesn't have any resistance against the edge. And it'll, you know, it'll stay sharp because it's not getting dull by means of the blade angle. So that's the long version of why we chose what we chose. (laughs) We don't, I don't really give a crap about shooting basement walls with my broadheads. (laughs) So if there's, if there's a steel out there that, um, is 20% stronger at shooting basement walls, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not starting a YouTube channel and shooting basement walls and doing, you know, metallurgy charts. I'm building a broadhead to be efficient for killing animals and repeatedly efficient for killing animals. That's what we designed. Yeah. So, um, (laughs) I've been playing. I've been playing with this for fifteen years, so it's not like we just decided to do it. You know.
0: Um, so let's sidebar here. I want to talk about that knife oh. you're carrying because, I mean, what you're saying to me sounds like a David Boy knife or something like that. Something that's. Uh, I mean, what what were you carrying that you're doing all these animals without having to resharpen?
2: Oh, it's a pocket knife. It's like a, it's like an everyday A D C knife like i'm i'm the i'm the so who made it
0: like chris reeves or something or who
2: (laughs) well no 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 i have lots of different knives um but so i have all right so we're probably the only hunting company that doesn't have our own like skeleton frame knife for sale because i think everybody in the hunting industry has a a, you know a cnc'd out skeleton frame knife pretty close probably yeah. So we're, we're the weirdos that don't sell a knife like that. For me, I'm a little old school. I have a knife in my pocket. When I leave the house, and it's there all day when I'm at the farm or if I'm hunting or on the mountain, I have a knife in my pocket. And that is the knife that I end up skinning, cleaning, quartering with really more than anything. I will carry some other knives for backup, but I, I guess I'm too lazy. I'm not going to go digging through my pack <laughs> to get the, the fancy quote skinning knife. I usually pull my knife out of my pocket that I've maintained an edge on. And that's what I usually knock the sides off all the deer and hogs with. Yeah. That's, you know, and that's the way everyone in my family and everyone I've ever hunted with they had, you know, a case or a, something in their pocket. And that's what you knock the guts out or knock the sides off a deer or a hog or whatever with. Yeah. Clean fish with it. I mean that I guess it's just so so I was just redneck, wondering like but... <laughs> if your
0: knife was like a dendritic uh cobalt or you know stellite or or something like that to where No 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 uh... no like so the knife I use the most is one uh I
2: don't know if you've ever heard of HMC knives, Helion Machine Collective. No. Um, I don't think I have. Yeah, he's a he's a super nice, he's a great, great human, but uh, HMC um, and he'll pretty much make what you want. And, um, you know, I've got some of his and uh, I've got a, you know, a knife that I have in my pocket. It's his most of the time. It's an S35, you know, blade. It's, uh, you know, easy to, once you get it sharpened, it's just incredibly easy to maintain an edge on as long as you don't abuse the blade when you're cleaning. Some people abuse the crap out of their knife when they're (laughs) working on an animal and they're frustrated because it doesn't, you know, make it all the way through and maintain its edge. Well, you got to be smart about what you're doing. You know, you've got to think through the process of, okay, I'm going to minimize how much hair, coarse hair I've got to cut through to open this animal up. And I'm going to minimize, you know, the things that are going to be damaging to the edge. I'm going to do all this work that I can do before I ever start attach, you know, attacking ball joints, cutting sinew tendons, things like that. You've got to do it in a process to, you know, make that edge last, especially with an elk yeah you know i mean that's their hair is just so much more coarse than a than a white tail is and their hides three
0: times as thick so it's just a different ballgame. i used to have well i borrowed it from my dad i, I believe it was a david boy b-o-y-e Um mm-hmm. he i don't think he's still around anymore but i borrowed the knife i went down um my dad's buddy used to help guide on a hunting ranch down in Missouri. And I went down there and we dressed out five hogs, nice size hogs before yeah. it, it never needed a sharpening the entire time. <laughs> it was, it was five animals and it was still <laughs> razor sharp. I remember it to this day. I was like, man, this is the coolest knife ever. But, um, super hard to regain an edge once you lose that edge. Um, cause it's so hard. It, yeah. it, it actually, actually hard on your tooling to try and resharpen it. But um, so I kind of wanted to get In our, into, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I'll just say our broadheads would be the same
2: way. As long as you maintain the edge on it um, and touch it up, you don't ever have to like really start over with like a, a, a low grit, you know, grind to bring a burr back up. Um, but on any high end knife steel or even our heads or other heads that you know, have that kind of steel people that experience, you know, struggles to resharpen them. It's really a function of they're not starting over. They're trying to just hone it. And if you lose too much of that edge, you've got to go back and bring it, bring a burr back up. That's, I mean, if if no one takes anything away from this podcast, (laughs) other than that, if you're working, if you're working on a, on a, a, a broadhead blade or a knife blade, For more than about five minutes and it's not getting any sharper, you're starting with too high of a, of a grit and you're, you're not waking the blade back up. You've got to basically get that thing, a a new
0: burr pulled up. If you'll do that first, you can sharpen a knife in a minute. So that brings me to a question then. What, what is Mm -hmm. the angle or the bevel of the, uh, the grind on, on your edge of the broad Uh, 20 degrees, 20 degrees, 20 degrees. Okay. Yeah. Never had to go that far yet, but uh, if I did, now now everybody knows twenty degrees is the uh, is the yeah correct angle to to get your uh, diamond on yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm really underselling our heads. I mean, because
2: they they hold their edge so dang well. I haven't had to do it it's... yet.
0: I I actually haven't. No, the, the paper wheel is the only yeah. thing I've used that, and uh, like a day to day, I actually don't even touch them on the paper wheel. I'll I'll like. If I'm taking them in and out of the the quiver, you know, like every day or every other day, I'll take them on a strop and just, I've got a strop with some polishing compound and that's enough just to buff that edge back to where you get that micro edge on there, that polish. And then it brings it back sharp enough to where it'll shave hair. But, uh, and
2: cardboard will work just as well, believe it or not. Really? Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. A cardboard box. Yeah. It's the, it's the, the, the compound, the buffing compound that does a great job but put a little buffing compound on a cardboard box if you don't have like a leather strop or a piece of leather and just drag it backwards don't cut against it and it'll do the exact same thing.
0: Really? Okay. And it'll that's, just be, Oh yeah. That's good to know. I mean I made my own straps, uh like I said cuz mm-hmm. knife guy, right? But um yep. just a piece of MDF and uh some wood glue and uh a piece of leather and you do a smooth side on one side and uh the 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 grain on the other and you put your different polishing compounds on there. Works pretty good. Yeah, it works great. Yeah, yep. you're right. <clears throat> um, but so I wanted to get into the actual arrows of the Day6 arrows. Okay. Because I'm kind of curious myself. I don't <clears throat> really know how that outsert works with the tuning and all that kind of stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious to learn more about it. So can you uh, fill me in uh, on about that? About the, the, the outsert system? Well, the, let's go over the whole system. Uh, oh, okay. You know. Okay. I, I,
2: well, the, the arrows are uh, a four millimeter. Uh, they're a four millimeter uh, ID arrow, inside diameter arrow. Um, our arrows are a little misleading because when people think of four millimeter, they think of micro diameter. Um, so they're picturing these little skinny arrows. Now our arrows are a small diameter arrow, but the way we make them, we make them a little different than what the industry standard is. So when you say pull the knock or you cut, cut one and you look at the end, you know, the sidewalls of our arrows are, you know, 40 to 100% thicker than just about anything you'll ever see. And it's because of the way we make the arrow. We don't, we just do it differently. So we use more material. Um, the beauty of that by using the more material is that the arrow is more consistent. You can really get the the, um, the spine tolerance perfect because you're not relying on so let's say that that to build a traditional arrow you would have to use five layers of carbon, okay? And you've got to rely on those five layers being within one percent tolerance. Makes sense. Yep. Yep. But the way we do it, let's say that there's ten layers. Well, we don't have to be one percent tolerance because when you have ten layers, you're already splitting what the tolerance requirement is. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So. While we still use the same quality material that everyone's using, we just use more of it, and it's the way we orient the carbon on the shaft so the 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 spin off of that is, is an incredibly durable arrow they're just you just about cannot break them um but the the really the most important thing for people to take away from what we're doing is people think it's about the weight well, the weight's great, that's what I love uh the, you know, they they're focused on the straightness
3: uh eh,
2: our arrows are just 1000 straightness just because of the again it's a byproduct of how we make them their the tolerances are extremely tight for me the number one thing for an arrow is spine so if you buy 300 spine shafts you want them to be all 12 spine yeah. so <laughs> the industry, the industry standard Is not that what's uh, you know accepted within the archery industry is a very broad range of of spine tolerance uh, between a a dozen different shafts. If you buy like what ours uh, are are achieving is basically, if you buy a dozen three hundred spine arrows, they're going to be three oh five to three hundred. Three hundred to two ninety-five. You're you're talking about a five thousandths tolerance in spine. That's where accuracy comes from. That's where arrow flight comes from. It's the shaft flexing identically as it comes off the boat from shaft to shaft to shaft. The beauty of that, the way we, another byproduct of our construction is the way we build them. You don't have to knock tune. So, when you're knock tuning arrows within a dozen you know within a dozen you're having to go no, do a knock tune you know rotate the arrow on the knock until you line all the, the stiff and weak sides up yep when you're doing that the more you have to do that it's basically telling you the worst tolerance that that spine is on that on that model of arrow with ours you don't really have to do that the the, the knock tuning is just it's it's non-existent they're all the same and they're all the same 360 around the clock So that's what my focus always was on. Um, When you combine the outsert system, the way we do it is uh, everything indexes off the center of the shaft, the inside, which is the perfectly straightest part of an arrow. If you're orienting or um, indexing your, your component system off like your cut end at the end where you cut the arrow or the outside diameter you're now indexing everything off of an imperfect or or not perfectly round surface. So if you look at an arrow, it looks like it's perfectly round on the outside, but it's really not. Most of them, all of them are somewhat egg-shaped, but just at a small degree, you would never notice. But by indexing everything off the inside, it's always gonna be perfect and perfectly aligned and, and, Perfectly centric with the center of the arrow, and that's where you get the perfect spin from. Everything's lined up. Um, The outsert system uh, is certainly a durability uh, enhancer, having the collar that slides over. The reason I like it, and the reason I like it overall way more than durability or anything else, is for a friction reducer. So. If the very front of your arrow is a 308 diameter, which is five sixteenths, is what the basically standard field points, broadheads, everything's right. kind of made to that 308. If the very front of your arrow is 308, and then immediately behind that point, after that, that head goes through a hide, goes, goes into an animal, and where that head and, that, and the end of that outsert meet, if that's 308 or your widest, largest diameter, once you get to that point, if everything else behind it is less, it's, a, it's basically you've created a slightly larger hole for a smaller object to go through with zero friction. Now, people talk about like the tapered shafts. It's the same concept, but the difference is, is that it's a slow taper as it's going to the back. Makes sense? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's slowly tapering to a smaller point with an outsert system on a small diameter arrow, once you go through the hide at that wide point, an inch behind that, you're already down to like a, you know, 30% less diameter. So the whole length of the shaft behind the first inch is 30, 40% less. So it's not touching anything as it's going through the bigger hole that the outsert's created. Any, Any arrow manufacturer will tell you that system with a small diameter and a larger collar, the, the, the penetration benefits are threefold. It's just, not, it's not a, a slight percentage better. It's like 300% better. And it's not just me saying that anyone that makes those arrows will tell you that. Why someone would ever shoot an arrow that's the same diameter front to back is without something like that in the front.
0: This day and age is beyond me. <laughs> I shoot a half cert so uh, I'm uh I'm kind of in that boat but uh not not quite <clears throat> you yeah know, I mean the half cert is quite a bit larger it's you know the diameter the well I guess the yeah but it, the but holder, it tapers the, up yeah. to 308 yes, yeah that's right yeah yeah same concept yeah 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 except that I like the how the cert, you know it's longer it gives it more of that taper than than such a drastic as the half the half cert. The half cert doesn't have as much. So I'm just, you know, kind of curious about I think it's pretty neat the concept of that because in a sense it's I mean it's like a tapered shaft. You're just not getting the the full the full length of it, right? You know, you're getting it that's correct. Yeah. Within a couple inches there. How long are your your out your your outserts then?
2: They're an inch and a half long. So you know it's a two piece system. So it's basically a half out like what you have. Okay. And then the end of that half out is threaded. And so our collar slides over and it threads on, but you also epoxy that on as well. So we're accomplishing two things. We have a mechanical bond with threads and then we have a chemical bond with epoxy. So once you screw our outstirts onto the, the insert parts or the half out parts, and then you epoxy them on, they're not coming off. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, you can, with, with, Thread it with threads, you know, screwed on threads and epoxy. I mean, you can, you know, glue the gates of hell shut. You're not getting <laughs> it open, you know. So,
0: so. <laughs> I'm just kind of curious then. Is there like a a balancing process or like um, something you got to come up with for, for the application? I mean, are you unthreading it after you balance it and then putting the epoxy on and doing it? Is there any balancing required or what? There's not. There's not. No.
2: Um, so basically the way we install them is we put a little bit of epoxy on the insert part and then we screw them together. And then we, you know, basically put the epoxy on the pin and then on the outside of the shaft, it's a 24 hour epoxy. So it has like a 20 minute work time. So you slide that on. Once you slide it on, you can put it on your spinner and spin it. Now, keep in mind, everything is indexing from the center of the shaft. So usually when you spin them, they're dead nuts. But if you had to rotate them a little bit, you could to get the, you know, concentricity.
0: Perfect. You're putting a pair of like channel them. locks on them and just kind of give them a tweak or, or can you do it? No, you do it hand? with your fingers. Okay. okay.
2: Yeah, no. So we have a, we have a one thousandth tolerance gap between the outside of the shaft and the inside of the collar. Once you slide that on. Now, a lot of people would say, well, you want that, you want that thing to fit perfect. You want it to touch. You don't want it to touch you actually want the only thing that's truly touching and indexing is that insert in internal pin that slides into the inside of the arrow that way. It's because consented. that's yeah. the, that's the true right. part. Yeah. All you want to do now, keep in mind a 1000th tolerance, 1000th of an inch is a human hair. So we're not talking about, you know, some giant gap there, but you want to fill that void with epoxy. And so it doesn't matter what the OD of the arrow is, whether it's out of round or whatever. As long as you have a tolerance there, when you slide that over, it's indexing on the inside. You fill that void with epoxy, and you're not going to have any pressure points It's going to push the outsert left, right, up, or down out of out of round. Right. So once it cures, you've got it completely bonded. And of course, I have, you know, half the bow hunting community now is either a metallurgist engineer they're all hobby hobby you know uh um you know uh engineers physicists all that good stuff so they say oh well you know well is that epoxy going to be strong enough you know to hold all that together for durability and i have to remind guys that you got to realize that all your all your carbon shafts are 50 percent epoxy right
0: (laughs) people don't realize that i mean
2: half your shaft is 50 percent epoxy the other half is carbon
0: think about all the stuff you've uh, seen on uh, the farm with jb weld that held for a long time
2: (laughs) yeah but i mean seriously the the half of the arrow is epoxy yeah so i mean epoxy is incredibly strong medium so anyway long story short (laughs) that's how our system goes together it's a mechanical bond and a chemical bond the beauty of the collar is and I'm not hacking on your, your system because we have the half outs as well, just the one piece. People just, yep. Some people like the simplicity of it. But at the end of the day, your, your arrow and your durability, your broadhead, anything you have, it's only as strong as the weakest point. And the weakest point on an outsert system is where basically the, where the cut shaft is at the end of that cut shaft where the pin and the, and the outsert meet and they butt the little one, six, five diameter of the pin where it meets the flat part, the shoulder that butts against the end of your arrow. It doesn't matter how strong all that other stuff is and what it's made of. It's only as strong as that little tiny small diameter arrow, right? Part, I mean, pin part. The beauty of the collar is that collars transferring that hinge point. Okay. So if you can imagine where the outsert, like the half out butts to the carbon, that's your weak point right there at that seam. The collar comes over that and it bridges that weak point and then it transfers it down you know, onto the shaft. Right. And then on the inside of the shaft, the pin extends even further towards the knock past that and it transfers that hinge even further back. So what you're doing is, is you're basically overlapping your seams that are creating hinge points or weak points, if you will. You're overlapping them and bonding them all together. So when it's all done, it's transferring basically the weakest point of where the leverage is gonna bend, which is the end of the cut arrow, it's transferring it back towards the knock in three different locations.
0: Okay. So I'm kind of so, curious, yeah. um what's the weight of the arrows like grain per inch? Mm-hmm. And then my other part to that question would be what's the weight of the outsert, and then um how far does the outsert actually go onto the arrow and do you recommend like the person cutting or getting the arrow and, you know, cutting it to whatever dimension or you, are you leaving it longer because of that or cutting it shorter because of that?
2: That's a really good question. So that's, that's really good questions because you asked more than one. So <laughs> number one, um, the grams per inch is of course, is going to be different based on the spine. Right. So they go anywhere from 8.2, which is our 500 up to 12.2 to our 250. Um, So they're heavier, like a grain or two per inch heavier than what your standard arrow would be. But there's a lot of arrows out there that are similar. Um, As far as the outsert system goes, we have a pretty good variation or a pretty good um, selection of materials and weights. And so what we tried to do is we tried to carve up the materials and design them in 25 uh, grain increments. So you basically can take the lightest system, which is a 25 grain insert portion and a 25 grain collar, combine those two and they're 50 grains. And then you can go from 50 to 75 to 100 to 125 to 150. And we achieve that by different materials so it's aluminum titanium stainless and then we've changed the design slightly so where the weights of the materials and the design like if you looked at all the collars all the inserts they're going to look identical to you but we've changed the geometry of them just slightly enough so you get that perfect 25 degree increment so you can mix and match and basically get whatever you want so for a guy that wants to shoot a 100 grain head but he wants to have 200 grains up front you know he can build a hundred grain outsert with a hundred grain head but for a guy that say loves a certain head that's only comes in 200 you know he can use the 50 grain outsert co- combined weight system and then use the 200 grain head and not be crazy heavy in the front so um we provided those options so guys can pretty much shoot whatever head they want whatever point weight they want within reason you know
0: right now that's pretty neat um so what's the price point i'm kind of curious now what's the price point for shafts and then kind of the uh the actual you know outserts and stuff like that rough idea we don't have to get specific but
2: yeah i'm embarrassed to say i'm having to look that up (laughs) Uh, i told you i'm not an internet uh hunting industry guy Uh, uh the the shafts are uh uh 176 for a dozen um and
0: uh 174 I'm sorry um which isn't that bad and hopefully my wife's not listening to this episode because uh, I may or may not have paid more so to, for for other yeah. other arrows.
2: <laughs> well you know people put us in the the expensive category the high end category and um I'm a very realistic, like black and white thinker. And so it never crossed my mind that we would be placed as expensive based on the things I've been buying, you know, previous to day six.
0: Yeah. Victory, uh, victory makes some pretty expensive shafts.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, all the companies do. (laughs) And, but if you think about it though, if you go buy a $180 set of shafts from some of these companies, the components that come with them, I mean, they are basically 10 cent, 20 cent little cheap aluminum components. Then you have to go buy some upgraded components if you want to have some durability or options for the ends. Right. You know, our arrows, <laughs> what they come with, with that centric component system as a standard. So that comes with our, the, the shafts? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. That's yeah. Um... Our, shafts a, our shafts are a bargain. <laughs> if you if you took if you took our shafts and took our component system away. Um and then you just went and bought, you know, third-party components, if you did that with any other arrow, you're at $240, $250. I mean, go price some of these other component systems. They're crazy expensive. Um, and ours come with these. I, I'm a black and white guy. I'm a very transparent person. Uh, I, this is not about money, marketing, or a shell game for us. This is about helping guys become better bow hunters. So I don't mind telling you, like, our cost is $3 an arrow for the components. So we have basically $1.50, like, for the two aluminum components that come with them, uh, for the 50-grain search system. But we're at $3 an arrow. Just for the components, that doesn't count the arrow, the knots, the, you know, all that. So that is what most aero companies cost for their shafts are. And that's what just our components are. So when we're at $174 for a dozen, if you back $36 off of that just for our cost, <laughs> you're going to make me do math. I think that's $138. I don't
0: know. I was yeah. trying to put it all together but yeah
2: yeah but it's, it's super cheap for what you get yeah the only reason that we're able to do that Luke, is because we don't have dealers direct so you got to realize that yeah we're direct to consumer so your, your standard discount in the archery industry to a dealer is 40 to 50 percent so that's what the, yeah. the standard discount is so you do the math you know, if somebody's if you're buying a really high-end set of arrows that's 200 dollars the dealer's paying 100 dollars to $120 for those. So that arrow company still has to make money on a 200 dollars set of arrows, they have to make money at $1,10, $120, because that's what they're selling it for to a dealer. Yeah. There's no way we could do that. I mean, if we did that, we would have to include the little 10 cent inserts or whatever that people get with their arrow standard, and then they would have to go buy components separate. We don't want to do that. We're trying to provide the complete system to a guy where he's just a one-stop shop. He can get, you know, what we feel is the best arrow and component system for hunting, and what we feel is the best broadhead design material, you know, execution for hunting. We don't give a crap about shooting foam. Not my pig, not my farm. Um don't care about offering different weights. I I don't understand the the concept behind we make the best hunting arrows, but you have 10 models. Well, which one's the best? I, I don't understand that, you know? So for us, what we're doing is we're basically building in a very simple thought process, we're building what we think is the best hunting arrow for us and the way we like to hunt. And we're building extras if other guys want to buy some, too. And that's basically the whole philosophy behind day six is I'm building what I want and other guys can buy it, too, if they want it.
0: We're building extra. That's that's pretty much it. That's pretty cool. Um, One thing I want to circle back to, though, is so when a guy says this is the length of arrow I want or or. um, Yeah, do you is there something to where because of the outsert and, you know, everything that goes along with that? is there a, a different length or, or how, how do you determine that?
2: That was, that was one of your questions that I've got off on a tangent there. I'm sorry. Okay. So, um, but that's a really good question because we get that a lot. That's one of our number one questions. Traditionally for a bow hunter, they go into their shop and when they get new arrows, they go in and there with their one arrow <laughs> and the guy at the shop cuts them. <laughs> 12 more arrows, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, seriously, 90% of the bow hunters you ask, what arrows do you shoot? They say, oh, it's a 28 inch arrow. That's what they know is how long it is. They don't know anything else about the arrow. So, when you go into a shop, they're basically going to say, okay, well, if you're a 28 inch draw, you shoot a 28 inch arrow. If you're a 27 inch draw, you shoot a 27 inch arrow. The arrow length historically has been the first thing that people determine. Arrow length should be the last thing that you determine when you're building an arrow because the length of that arrow is the easiest way to adjust the flex or the dynamic spine. Correct. So, and it's not a one size fits all. If you've got 10 guys that are shooting 27 inches, but one's at 62, one's at 65, one's at 68, you can't build the same arrow for that guy. And then if one guy's shooting a hundred grain head, but another guy's shooting a one fifty. You can manipulate the length of that arrow to offset for that broadhead point weight choice.
0: Shorten it up. So definitely. what
2: we—that's <laughs> so. So that's right. Yeah. You shorten it or lengthen it. Yeah. So what we do with guys is when they call us, we say, "Hey, listen, tell us draw weight, draw length, and point weight." If you've got a a bucket full of Thunderhead one twenty fives and you're going to shoot one twenty fives, that's what we need to know because for me. I want to be able to take what that guy's shooting, draw weight, draw length and point weight and build him the perfect arrow, including the length. So to answer your question, when we tell guys you want to cut your arrow 28 inches, that's what you're cutting the carbon from the throat of the knock. And basically the outsert adds an inch to that lengthwise, but it also comes back over the arrow three quarters of an inch. So we keep that in mind because let's say a guy's a 28 inch draw i'm not gonna tell him to cut an arrow 26 inches because the back of the collar could interfere with his rest. right you see what i'm saying oh yeah yeah
0: that's kind of what i was thinking in my head that and it reminded me of the uh, the old overdraws and how stupid and silly that was with the (laughs) Broadhead dangling right over your wrist, you know. <laughs> well, you got to realize i I worked in a
2: I worked in a hunting and fishing store a, <laughs> and ran an archery shop in the eighties and nineties, and I can tell you some crazy overdraw stories because that was it. back in the day. So uh, if you had an arrow longer than twenty four inches, you were a goober. Yeah, you know, I mean, everybody was cutting them as short as they could get them, but um, uh, but anyway, no. So what we're doing is is we're basically designing an arrow system for each individual shooter each individual hunter because it's not a one size fits all that is super important for guys to uh to realize that it's not a one size fits all
0: no that's that's a that's good information i think and uh if I order some, you know, keep that, I'll keep that in mind. And, uh, that's something for everybody else to kind of keep in mind to just maybe even contact you and kind of work that, work through that process then. Um, yeah, because well, that's what we do. Yeah. We taught everybody, Lou. Every single person. I like that. Um, yep. I like it. So with that being said, I think that's a good point to wrap it up. Um, I was super curious about the product and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, enjoyed talking to you about, the different hunting stories even before we uh, actually remember to hit the record button. <laughs> sure. And uh and uh it's it's been good talking to you. So can you tell people where to find you and and uh the all the products and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, well we only we only have um uh our website gear.
2: Uh we have an Instagram page. Uh we do monitor that. We do have a Facebook page. It just gets mirrored or whatever we do mm-hmm. on Instagram. That's kind of like, I bad. literally, <laughs> yeah. I don't ever go to Facebook cause it gets me in a bad mood and uh, I've got to, <laughs> I've got to hire somebody to look at that for me. Cause I don't like looking at it. I get so upset. Look at all the crap on there. But, um, so if you want to reach us, you can reach us through Instagram. You can reach us through the website. Uh, if you, if you call, that's what I encourage guys to do. Either myself or Dakota is going to answer the phone. And all we do is bow hunt. We don't have any other interest in life other than that. So we're not going to steer you towards industry trends or gadgets or gadgets. We're just going to get you set up for being efficient. Um, we just started a YouTube channel um, only because I love um, I love uh, video in our hunts. I love making really good films. I've always kind of had a passion for that. So we started doing that this year and we're, we were, are releasing one film a month. Um, so th- that is not there to sell anything. It's just something we like to do. And we're kind of trying to use it as a way to highlight some of our customers, some of our friends and kind of show the way we hunt and also show kind of our approach to hunting and how we respect it and kind of, you know, the way we want to represent ourselves as hunters, nice. which is super important to me. Um, we did put a video on there on how to install our component system. Uh, we just got through, uh, filming a video on sharpening broadheads, which I think is going to be super popular for guys. Cause we get a lot of guys saying, man, I, I can't even sharpen a knife. How would I sharpen a head? So <laughs> we're kind of going to show how easy that is. And then we're working on some tuning stuff, but it's mostly just going to be really cool films about our customers our friends not about us but just you know people that that uh we interact with and people that represent hunting the right way in our in our
0: opinion i i totally understand that um that's a that's a good and way to represent that because uh especially this day and age social media that kind of kind of clouds things a little bit um but I appreciate you coming on, and, and uh, thank you so much for talking and uh, really filling me and the listeners in on, on your product and uh, some cool hunting stories along the way. And uh, sure, thank you, man. Thank you for coming on.: Oh you bet I enjoyed it. Thanks..
1: fun to go with like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chasing the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.
2: I'm Will Cooper, host of Hunt Stands Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.